Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw Radio, this is True Crime Uncensored with the legendary Burl Bear, self-sequestered. I'm Mark Boyer, your fact checker. Today's program is produced with great reluctance by Magic <laughs> Matt Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network. Tour words were never spoken. <laughs> spoken. Boy, is he reluctant. Today we're yeah. going to talk to the imaginary Burl Bear. Yeah, no kidding. I'm still in a lockdown. It's a tragic story. It hasn't been this exciting since I did 13 hours nonstop on KTEL in Walla Walla. Because <laughs> the uh, just jockey after me passed out or something, he never showed up. <laughs> so there I was, 13 hours on the air. But this, 54 minutes, I think I can handle it. Outstanding. What are we talking today, Burl? Today we're going to hear a little-known story, but I know the story, so I'll tell it to you. Well, it's a, <laughs> what is it? The story of the Center for Constitutional Law and Justice. That which sounds is based in North Hollywood, California. Fascinating. One of the biggest scams ever perpetrated on the people of Los Angeles in the entire history of the of the city. Um, the why don't we start with our hero? Who is with Fred me. Wilson? Well, Fred Wilson, for those of you who are longtime listeners to Outlaw Radio, uh, prior to moving to Florida and prior to being severely injured and being crippled, uh, he was a regular on Outlaw Radio and on True Crime Uncensored. One of the most famous privatized in America. I used to do the security for the White House, uh, OPEC, and he's the only American, or the only non-Saudi, actually, to receive the highest Medal of Honor you could receive from Saudi Arabia, the Royal Cross and Palms. There was a, a passenger liner that was blown up by terrorists, and Fred caught them and got their confession, and so he's kind of a hero wow. uh, for that in Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> and uh, regular on our show for uh, many years, because after all, we have been around many years. We're going about to start, I think, our 13th year. Well, <clears throat> that's, uh, that's, that's distressing. Yeah, I know, for all the people concerned. Anyway, uh, I got this story from Fred, who's intimately involved in the story in more ways than one. As you'll, as you'll hear as, as I tell you this exciting tale, you got to go back in time. All right, you've done that probably several times. This is a nonprofit organization. It opened its doors in 1991. It was the mastermind entrepreneur Fred Sebastian. Uh, it was a civil rights organization that represented clients who couldn't afford an attorney. Clients would pay whatever they could come up with, uh, probably usually two or three thousand dollars, and the center would handle the case from there. In about seven short months, the center supposedly represented over 1,600 defendants. Now, the Center for Constitutional Law and Justice consisted of six attorneys, including Mr. Sebastian, and two paralegals. The newest of the attorneys was a recent hire named Dennis Palmieri. When he saw the ad in the National Law Journal, it was just too good to pass up. This is what the ad said. <clears throat> Established civil rights law firm is in the process of opening offices in every state before December of this year. If you have a liberal outlook and a desire to try controversial civil and criminal cases with national impact and enjoy recognition and publicity, call the Center for Constitutional Law and Justice and ask for Fred Sebastian. Well, Dennis just thought that was the cat's pajamas. He jumped 
is the opportunity. Now, Dennis was about as liberal as one could get, and the spotlight was something he never shied away from. He was hired after only one interview, immediately he went to work. And Dennis liked his new boss, this uh, Fred Sebastian guy, his kind of lawyer. He was an attorney who seemed to write his own rules, and Dennis, who was, <laughs> shall we say, a bit of an eccentric himself, could relate. Now, when Fred gave him his first assignment, Dennis was eager to impress him, but it wasn't going to be easy. I don't know if you were alive or not, if you remember the Los Angeles riots. They'd just taken place, and Fred Sebastian had been watching with a keen eye. Four men had attacked this guy named Reginald Denny. And one of them smashed poor Denny in the face with a brick and did significant brain damage to the poor guy. Yeah, Denny hadn't done anything wrong. He just happened to be there. Wasn't he the anyway, fella in the truck they dragged out? Yes, that's right. He was driving his truck. He opened the door. They dragged him out, smashed him in there with a brick. Well, this is exactly the high-profile kind of case you can put the organization on the front pages of every newspaper in the country, which is what Fred Sebastian had coveted from day one. Dennis Palmieri's assignment was to find Damian Football Williams' family and persuade them to let the center take on the case pro bono. It means for nothing. Damian was the star of the L.A. Four. He was the guy who hit Denny in the face with a brick. And Sebastian didn't taste the brick, but he could taste the publicity already. Dennis knew it would be, wouldn't be easy, but he was determined and vowed to give it his all. Well, things he had no idea where the family lived, whether it was somewhere in South Central. With no other choice, he began the search, and literally the guy went door to door in the neighborhoods asking, is this the Williams household? I mean, Williams is kind of a common name. After two days of searching, he found what he was looking for. Georgiana Williams had been beside herself, single mother of four kids, wanted desperately to help her youngest child, Damien. If he had truly done what the news media was portraying, then he'd pay the price, but she at least wanted the assurance that her son would get a fair trial. Public defender pretender was out of the question, but a high-powered attorney, no way to afford it. She tried, but the NAACP also offered no help. She was alone, confused, not sure what to do next. Knock up the door, solve the problem. Timing couldn't have been better. Dennis Palmieri and the Center for Constitutional Law and Justice must have been sent from heaven. There was no other logical explanation. She immediately signed on the dotted line, gave him the case. She'd done her job. Her son was now in the best possible legal hands, and better yet, it was free. Kind of a cross between the ACLU and Amnesty International was the way Paul Mary had described his law firm. It was perfect. Georgiana Williams could now rest easy. Her son would get a fair trial. Now here's where our buddy and uh, former outlaw radio regular Fred Wilson comes into the story. Private investigator Fred Wilson was sitting in his office when the call came in. He just finished months of tedious work on the Rodney King case, working for the Los Angeles Police Department Protective League as a civilian investigator. He was looking forward to taking some much-needed time off, but that uh, wasn't going to be the story. An attorney named Dennis Palmieri was on the line, and he was asking for the investigator's help in the defense of Damon Williams. 
Fred was wary about accepting the job during the King investigation. His family had received numerous death threats. He thought it was finally over and put to rest. Now this, well, Fred agreed to work on the case under two conditions. First, he had to get to interview Damon Williams personally. Second, if Damien was lying, Fred wanted no part of it. Paul Mary agreed, and after Fred's initial interview with the Damien at the Los Angeles County Jail, he was brought on board as the chief investigator for the defense. Now, obviously, Fred's going to have to be with his boss, right, Fred Sebastian. That first meeting did not go very well. From minute one, uh, our private eye knew something just wasn't right. The founder of the center was nervous, evasive, seemed to have everything on his mind other than the defense of Damien Williams. Now, Fred, if you know him, and I do, is an expert in human behavior, which agrees to back it up. They knew immediately this was a man with something to hide. Deciding to pry, uh, Wilson asked Mr. Sebastian about his background. The answer he received would send up a major red flag. Sebastian told Wilson that he used to work clandestine operations for the CIA. Wrong, and Coincidentally, Fred Wilson himself was an ex-employee of the federal government, and he knew from experience that no ex or current agent of the CIA would ever come out and say it. Well, the nation was watching as the preliminary hearing of Damon Williams began. The Center for Constitutional Law and Justice fell firmly on the map, absolute talk of the town. And Fred Sebastian, who gained so much notoriety, was now hosting his own radio call-in talk show called Civil Liberties, which got him even more business and more donations. Life was good, and Mr. Sebastian's business was flourishing. Everything would have been perfect except one small fly in the ointment named Fred Wilson. Sebastian's CIA comment really bugged uh, Wolfson. It bothered him immensely. He decided before going any further to check out the center and his mastermind. If the investigator was going to work for him, he didn't want any surprises coming back to haunt him later. The lack of progress Palmieri and Sebastian were making at the preliminary hearing was uh, also leaving a bad taste in his mouth. The strategy they were using in the defense of Damon Williams was bizarre, to say the least. On the morning of the initial arrest, Damien had made a taped confession in his involvement in the beating of Reginald Denny. Needless to say, it was quite damaging to his case, but the defense had it out. According to a procedural rule, the defense has the right to ask the court to suppress a piece of prejudicial information, but it can make the request only once in the course of a case. Dennis Palmieri believed that if Damien's statement was played in open court, he'd be deemed guilty by anyone who heard it, most importantly, jurors. He immediately filed a motion to suppress the tape, but there was a big argument. Fred Sebastian disagreed with the attorney and ordered Palmieri to withdraw the notion, which sounds crazy, doesn't it? Dennis knew it was a mistake, but was threatened with his job and finally gave in and withdrew the motion. Supporters of the L.A. 4 were livid. The black community was up in arms, telling anyone who would listen to Damian Williams' attorney was obviously prejudiced and for some reason was doing everything in his power to screw up the case, which seemed fairly obvious at this point. Private investigator Fred Walton by this point had seen enough. He intensified his investigation of the center and Mr. Fred Sebastian. 
didn't like what he found. The investigators' instincts have been on the money. According to the Secretary of State and the City of Los Angeles, the Center for Constitutional Law and Justice didn't even exist. No DBA? It didn't even exist. There was no business license. No DBA? It was not registered no, as a nonprofit organization, and it wasn't a corporation. Fred immediately called Dennis Palmieri and withdrew from the case. He told him something's not right, and I'm not going to be part of this. Dennis accepted his resignation, but didn't really give it much thought. He was much too immersed in the hearing and figured hiring another investigator was just another item to be added to his already long list of things to do. It finally appeared the private investigator would be able to take his long-awaited time off. He was burnt out, couldn't remember the last time he was actually able to relax. But then another phone call changed Wilson's plans. Unbelievably, it was Fred Sebastian on the line. This guy just wouldn't go away. Sebastian said he was sorry that Fred had withdrawn from the case, but wanted to make him another offer. Sebastian asked Fred if he'd be interested in working a seizure case for the center. What does that mean? There was a $12 million jet plane had been seized from one of his clients by the federal government. If the center could retrieve the plane, his commission would be in the neighborhood of $4 million. Sebastian offered to split the commission with Fred Wilson if he could simply find the location of the plane. Not bad, $2 million just for finding the location of the plane. Needless to say, the investigator's first question was, why, Big W, why had the government seized the jet plane in the first place? <laughs> Seemed right? like a good thing to do at the time. Sebastian told him, none of your business. <laughs> With no intention of working for the center or Mr. Sebastian, Fred played along. Anyway, knowing that now is the time to once and for all exactly who this Fred Sebastian really is. The first thing he did was run the name of the man Sebastian had given him as the owner of the airplane. Fred was not the least bit surprised to find out the owner of the plane was a major figure in organized crime. The preliminary hearing of Damien Williams was finally winding down. Dennis Palmieri had been writing his closing summation for weeks, and it was at last ready. Unfortunately, he may have been too ready. Once he began his closing argument, he refused to end it. He went on and on and on. They took the morning break. He went on and on. They took the lunch break. And he continued again. Then it was time for the afternoon break. There was no end in sight. The courtroom was stunned. Paul Mary was babbling, not making a lot of sense. Maybe it had all finally caught up with him, or maybe he'd been crazy from the beginning. Fred Sebastian couldn't believe what he was hearing. The airwaves were filled with stories of the crazed defense attorney and his summation from hell. Sebastian was beside himself and frantically grabbed a file folder stuffed with old resumes. Surprisingly, he had never actually taken the time to read Dennis Palmieri's resume. Uh -oh. He'd been so excited to hire the lawyer when he actually agreed to go door-to-door -to, -door to bring it in the Damien Williams case, he hadn't even bothered to glance at it. For the first time, he decided now to sit down and read Palmieri's resume. Palmieri stated on his resume that he'd worked expeditions to Mars, and it also helped Who hasn't, finding Earl? Who hasn't? <laughs> what? Who hasn't? He, said, well, he did the mining expeditions on Mars. 
and helped establish mining colonies on the moon. The rest of the resume was equally bizarre. Sebastian knew he made a serious error in judgment. I read the guy. All he answered was to get to the courthouse and rectify it before it was too late. So Sebastian, in what is believed to be a first, burst into the courtroom that day and tried to fire his attorney in mid-summation. He informed the judge that this Palmieri was off the case and would no longer be affiliated with the Center for Constitutional Law and Justice. But for the seriousness of the moment, it would have been a comic scene, as you could probably, probably surmise. A windy lawyer getting the axe in the middle of his closing argument. The judge thought he'd seen it all, but it's what took the cake. He finally decided to ignore both Sebastian and Palmieri and left the decision up to Damien. Well, what are you going to do? This guy's your attorney, right? Damien's decision was to let Palmieri finish his summation. Fred Wilson, meanwhile, shifted his investigation of Sebastian into high gear. His findings not only exceeded his own expectations, they were mind-boggling. Fred Sebastian, get this, wasn't even a lawyer. He had no legal background. American Bar Association never heard of him. Practicing law without a license was the least of his problems. Fred Sebastian wasn't even Fred Sebastian. His real name was Fred Solani. Gets better. Solani did, in fact, have extensive experience with the law, but not as a lawyer. <clears throat> Solani had spent many occasions over the years in prison for operating various cons all over the country. In New York, there was a bogus riverfront development deal. In Illinois, he posed as a tax lawyer and mechanical engineer. He was charged with fraud and racketeering and released on a $10,000 bond. While awaiting trial, he opened a bogus real estate consulting firm and cheated investors out of $100,000 in four months. When Solani was released from prison in 91, he immediately rented office space and opened the Center for Constitutional Law and Justice. This would prove to be not only his biggest con job to date, but quite possibly the biggest con in the history of America. Mr. Solani scammed an entire nation, and we fell for it, Oakland and Sinker. Not for my buddy Fred Wilson, he might have got away with it. Fred called the Justice Department and gave him what he had on Sebastian. It was hard for them to believe that a lawyer in charge of possibly the biggest case in Los Angeles history was a complete fraud. But there it was in black and white, and it was undeniable. Nobody could understand how Sebastian had pulled it off for so long, but they all agreed on one point. It was time to get Solani off the streets once and for all. The FBI set up its own con. One of the center's other clients was a suspected drug trafficker in Little Rock, Arkansas. Upon questioning the suspect's wife, the FBI learned that Mr. Sebastian had let it be known that it might be possible for the center to get the woman's husband off if she gave Sebastian 50 grand to bribe a federal official. Timing couldn't be better. The feds wired the woman, and on two occasions, she got Sebastian to repeat the offer, only now it was on tape. When Sebastian flew to Little Rock and accepted the money, feds moved in quickly, finally over. The Center for Constitutional Law and Justice was officially closed, with the California State Bar taking over its still open cases, which number close to 1,000. While the center was open for business, estimates probably took in approximately $4 million, although no one knows the exact number for sure. Solani is currently residing in an Arkansas prison, uh, at least when, uh, when Fred sent me this information, which was a few years ago. Since now, time to come clean, I supplied authorities with the following information. 
Salani now claims, or claimed then, that he was a secret agent acting on government orders. His orders were to get the Damian Williams case and do whatever he could to sabotage it. The Bush administration, he says, wanted to prove there was lawlessness in L.A. and they were losing the ability to control the people in L.A. If they could create this racial struggle, they knew that the law and order vote would come to their side. Well, Damian Williams quickly hired a new attorney who immediately asked that all charges be dropped because of what had transpired with the center. Congresswoman Maxine Waters agrees that the case has been so tainted it's beyond being tampered with. The implications in the legal community regarding the center are overwhelming. The center handled over 1,600 criminal cases. In not one of those cases was a plea bargain accepted, a reduced sentence achieved, or a not guilty verdict awarded. The possibility exists that all 1,600 cases will have to be retried since they obviously never had proper legal representation. If this scenario unfolds, it will be the first in the annals of our country's legal history. Fred Sebastian pulled off the con of all time. He not only scammed Los Angeles, but an entire nation as well. Now, there are dozens of loose ends still dangling in the Sebastian Solani story. It might take many years to clean up the mess. Was there a conspiracy? Was the government involved? Doubtful. Yet, some pieces of the puzzle do have trouble fitting. Solani claims when he was released from Terminal Island Prison in 91 that he was recruited by Ron Brown, then chairman, well, second chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Supposedly, according to him, the Democrats were desperate to win California in the upcoming presidential election. They hired him to help sabotage prominent Republican conservatives. Using the center as a front, Solani said he followed Representative Bob Dornan and bugged the offices of Rush Limbaugh. He says he was then instructed by federal agents to solicit the Damien Williams case so they could ensure the reading of Damien's confession in open court. My orders were to completely F up the case, says Solani. I was told to countermine Paul Mary and bury our client, which I did. With that accomplished, I was sent to Little Rock to thwart the murder of a federal judge. The money, got, the money I took was all part of the cover-up, but an overzealous FBI agent was out of the loop and had me arrested. When I called my contact in Washington, I was told to sit tight and all be taken care of. Now he won't accept my calls, which is why I have chosen to come out and tell the truth. The Solani's tale seems a desperate alibi. It's because of conviction would make him a three-time loser, heading into a prison filled with many dissatisfied customers. Now, in the beginning, in the beginning, federal officials denied any knowledge of Fred Solani. Today, however, the story has changed. A document has been uncovered that unbelievably adds a shred of credibility to Solani's case. In a letter addressed to him, from the House Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations, dated September 30th, 1986, and personally signed by Representative John Dingall of Michigan. The letter promises that the committee will never use any classified information obtained and supplied by Solani directly or indirectly to his detriment. This is the first piece of evidence actually linking Solani with the federal government and it's alarming to say the least. Not surprisingly, the government disclaims it. Uh, subcommittee member Dennis Fitzgibbons admits that Solani was contacted in 1986 in connection with ongoing investigation of government contracting, but says the information Solani provided was false, so the matter was dropped, as was Solani. 
All the rest of his charges are baseless, adds Fitzgibbons. Complex situation, to say the least. Many questions still need to be answered. Was it a conspiracy? Doubtful. But as an Arkansas lawyer familiar with the case states, I once thought Solani was crazy, but his story is beginning to make too much sense. He's just much too consistent and knows way too many people. Interesting sidelight is that one of the women who was a uh, paralegal at the Center for Law and uh, Constitutional Law and Justice stayed there, kept it open, and did her best to uh, serve the clients that they had got on board, uh, ordered by the Bar Association to do so. And she was actually punished, even though she she was totally innocent of any wrongdoing herself, and she stayed and did everything she could to help uh, the people who had signed up with uh, the center actually get some justice. So how about that? Well, the government punishing the wrong people is nothing new. Oh. The government punishing the wrong people is nothing new. Well, if you, the right if people you, are uh, <laughs> If you work for a company and you're their accountant, and you're not involved, but the company is not paying um, the proper taxes. Yeah. The owners can scoot, but because you're low-hanging fruit, you're the one that gets dinged. Well, that's not right. And they come after you, even though you're the one that dropped the dime on them, and you're the one that wasn't involved in the fraud. And it happens all the time. Well, that's true. As uh, now the blatant self-emotion, my book Headshot, where Andrew Webb and Paul St. Pierre have a couple of homicides here, and the district attorney stupidly says, first one through the door gets the deal. They're not supposed to do that anyway, <laughs> but the first one through the door gets the deal. And it was Andrew Webb was the first one through the door, offering a deal. Take the death penalty off the table. Take life in prison off the table. I will testify against Paul Pierre, St. Pierre, and Christopher St. Pierre in the murder of this kid. And so they signed the deal, did the deal. And when he got up on the witness stand to testify, he said, it was all me, it was all my fault. I'm the only one who did anything. I'm the only one who did it. I killed the kid. The other two people were shocked. They didn't know I was going to do it. They're innocent. Which, they'd already signed the deal with him before he testified. So <laughs> he had the death penalty off the table and he had life in prison off the table. He was eventually uh, got uh, paroled or probation, or whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. Let's see how it's smart. He outsmarted the uh, DA, yeah. Pretty crafty, eh? Well, they say the best, uh, best law enforcement officers are the ones who can think like criminals. Because if you can't think like a criminal, you're not going to do a very good job. You'll do all sorts of strange conclusion jumping, mm-hmm. think there's things going on that aren't, and don't think there are things going on that are. Did I say it? Uh, what was that TV series that takes a thief? Yes. <coughs> Alexander Mike. Alexander Mike. If you can't think like one, you're not going to no. catch one. No, Mr. Mundy. I want you to steal. You want me to steal? Well, that was the uh, opening tagline <coughs> when the government agent, you know, offers him the job. If you say so. 
I'll go along with it. Well, you know, that was, uh, we had, uh, um, we had his co-star on the show some years ago. Who's co-star? Uh, 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 Robert Wagner's in It Takes a Thief. Oh. Who was, was his co-star? Uh, what is the woman who was giving head to the, uh, uh, wizard? <laughs> the, uh, Alice in Wonderland character, was it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? what is, is it the best Matt Allen's favorite movies. I remember when we had her on the show, Matt couldn't wait to ask her, were you really, do really doing that or were you pretending to do that? She said, oh, I was really doing that. Good for her. Was that the Mad Hatter she was uh, doing that to? Uh, no, that was the uh, the Cheshire Cat. Uh, no wonder he was smiling. Yeah. Yeah, where is she now? Is she still around? Uh, I don't know. Matt would know. He keeps track of her, just in case. <laughs> okay, how you doing with this, um, hate to date the show, but how you doing with this uh, virus thingy? Um, you taking care of yourself? I'm, ha you know, I'm fine, I guess. You guess? Yeah. I don't know. They got me locked up in uh, my luxurious uh, townhome condominium in Stevenson Ranch, where I'm not supposed to venture outside without uh, looking like Kenny on South Park. <laughs> uh, Malachi Throne was the uh, first one. Malachi? Malachi Throne. Yeah, we had him on the show. He was a great guest. No, oh, that's a good name. Must have been a Schwarzenegger. No. No? No. Great he's, name. Uh, he, he's a character actor and been around for a long time. Well, you know, the other character actor that passed away suddenly was a shock to me was Ed Louder. Well, yeah, we just had him on the show. Yeah, and uh, he invited me out to dinner, and uh, we went to this restaurant uh, on uh, Ventura Boulevard, and whoever his girlfriend was at the time was just kind of, who's he? What's he doing here? That was years ago. <laughs> huh? That was years ago. Yeah. She said, who are you? What are you doing here? And I said, uh, I'm with him. I'm with your fourth friend here. He dragged me along. He said, he's going to buy me dinner. And you know me. I can't pass that up. If I don't know you, he's laughing at her like she's crazy. He said, well, this is my friend Burl. We were just on the radio together. It's Matt Allen's. I want to buy him dinner. And she went, ah, you bet you don't even know him. <laughs> I said, listen, you guys, I'm late for the door. I don't want to be here for domestic violence. Yeah, you be so I, Burl. I took off. Yep. Let them have their squabble. The next I heard, he was gone. Burl Bear's been poaching my guests as friends for years. That's why I have no well, friends. And what about Marty? Hey, by the way, this this makes sense. We'll uh, we'll take you out uh, with this. Ah. Listen carefully, Burl. not asking you to spy, just asking you to steal. Now you can take your smoking, drinking, interrupting obsession with you 24 hours a day on any phone or device. And it's all free. Just go to your friendly app store and search for Outlaw Radio. 
Then look for the red letters on the sign with the bullet holes in it and download it. It's free. Listen free on the road, in your car, at the beach, or in your backyard. It's all free from Outlaw Radio. This is Buddy Twist saying goodnight from Hollywood. And now, back to True Crime Uncensored, formerly hosted by Burl Bear and Don Waldman. But Don Waldman is dead. True Crime Unsplintered, Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. And Mark C.G., you know. You'd hang up, Mark. Yeah. That makes sense. Hello. Hello. What the hell was that? That was a burl. No, I understand that, but it's not uh, whatever. So I'm I'm not liking this trend, Matt. Yeah, what's that? Co-hosts of his show dropping like flies. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. First it Don Waldman. He went to the Great Beyond. Then Howard Lapidus. But I was supposed to be dying. Who died instead? He did. And then we have you. Yes, well, I don't want to go to the great anything this moment in time. Yeah, <laughs> going to go to the great fact checker in the sky. But see, here I am uh, on lockdown because I'm the high-risk poster child. Well, yeah, yeah. You're, you know, you just had open-heart surgery. and had open-heart surgery. I got COPD. I'm aged and senile. Um, and and you're an ultra liberal commie. E I E I O. E I E I O. I'm, I'm ultra liberal, but I'm not a commie. I'm a big fan of small business like extortion and blackmail. <laughs> <laughs> ultra liberal and commie. It's <laughs> redundant. No, no. My dad told me, isn't now you may disagree with him. I'm sure you will. But my father took me aside when I was but it's a young lad. He said, Burl, remember, if you ever heard them say this is probably more true then than it is now. If you ever hear them say damn liberals, follow the money, follow the conversation, what it really means is damn Jews. Which made sense back then because the only political movements Jews were allowed to participate in was the socialist movement. Because it was the only one that said that the government shouldn't be telling you when to pray, what to pray, how to pray, etc. And they'd let the Jews participate. Well, that was awfully nice of them. Yeah, but another Christian Democrats, Christian whatever, wouldn't let the Jews do anything. No, they had to stay in the ghetto. So uh, it was only the commies and the socialists, uh, etc., liberals that wouldn't let the Jews uh, have any voice at all. Of course, Hitler just hated them to pieces because... Because Germany lost World War One, They blamed that on the Unionists, which were Jewish leaders of the Union. <laughs> Working people have rights? Hell no. <laughs> and then the, the number one party in Germany was the Socialist Party, which was the Jews again. And uh, good heavens. You know, so he, he had his work cut out for him. So back in my father's time, back in time around World War Two, after that, if someone said, damn liberals, what they really meant was damn Jews. I think now it takes a lot more work to get from one to the other. But if you work hard enough and wait long enough, <laughs> those commie, pinko, Christ-killing, you know, well, sooner or later, it just takes a while. The good thing, though, is that Matt is an anti-Semitic. 
So if someone started yelling at you know, ranking that stuff at him, he'd probably poke him in the nose. Because mm. Melvin Burrow gave uh, Matt kind of a, a, a half Judaic heritage by must have laughed at the right jokes. <laughs> hey, did you know that Chasey Lane was in that weird movie with everybody in it, the Lone Ranger and Tonto and Leo Gorsi and Hans Hall? <laughs> no, I did not. <clears throat> yeah, I asked her about that. <laughs> she said, yeah. I mean, everybody's in that movie. It's a horrible movie, but everybody's in it. The Lone Ranger, Tonto, every pop culture thing you can think of, including Chasey Lane. She said, oh, yeah, we financed that or company, whatever, and they made it. And whatever it was, TBS or whoever, they had a hand in it. Just ran it all the time, HBO or someplace. But uh, I was watching a clip from it the other night. Uh, cause I was looking at all the old Hunts Hall and Leo Gorsi clips. Because I watched Mad, 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 Mad. How many Mads? World, again, the other night. Which is a fun movie. How do you get through that? It's so long and tedious. I know it's not as long as Long Long Trailer with uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Mm. (laughs) But it is a long movie. There's a lot of long movies out there. I've been watching a lot of movies since I've been down with this, uh, you know, trying not to be dead business. Watch Captain's Courageous with Spencer Tracy and Freddie Bartholomew. Well, if you're talking Spencer Tracy, you have a bad day at Black, uh, bad day at Black, Black day Rock. Bad day at Black Rock, which I saw at the Capitol Theater in Walla Walla. That's a good film too. <coughs> and um, so we watched four films in one day. Have you, have you seen not Knives Out? We watched a lot of Bowery Boy movies with Hans Hall and Leo Gorsi. <laughs> have you found Knives Out yet? Huh? Knives Out. Oh, yeah, I watched Dives Out. That was fabulous. I enjoyed that tremendously. They're making a sequel now, you know. I should hope so. Yeah. With, uh... <laughs> Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig returning, of course, to the private eye. Mm-hmm. Got a kick out of him. That was a fun movie. What else did we watch? Okay, we've seen just, I mean... Oh, I watched Rise of Skywalker, but I missed the last 10 minutes. <laughs> Does Mark Hamill show up in it somewhere? No. He's in no. it earlier in the movie. Does he show up at all? Yes, he does, but the movie is pretty... The whole the whole trilogy was pretty piss poor. Pretty what? It was not entertaining. It was bad filmmaking. It was not entertaining. Which was your favorite? That's a good question. I'm I'm gonna have to go with um, um, Reven- uh, uh, um I guess Revenge of the Empire. It's the second it's episode uh, the Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, the Empire Strikes Back, you know, where they freeze Han Solo. Yeah. That's so funny is my daughter was about six years old when uh, the third one came out. And she said she's had a photograph it won't be photographic, audiographic memory which I used to have, too, but when you get older, it goes away. But she could recite the entire dialogue for the entire movie after seeing it once, <laughs> which kind of faded away eventually. She went, I'm Luke Skywalker, Jedi Knight, and I, and I come to you unarmed. Jabba, release my friends. <laughs> and she goes, Dad, you know why he says I come to you unarmed? I said, why is that? He goes, the end of the last movie, he had his arm chopped off. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, yeah. I, you know. I thought the worst one was the uh, the fourth, the, the one that George Lucas directed where no one could act. And, uh, oh, the Hayden uh, Christensen was got to be the worst choice for an actor. I felt sorry for uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Well, he didn't really have that much to I do. Speak into the microphone, please. He didn't have that much to do. No, and he, and he didn't know how to do it either. <laughs> mm. Yes, stupid you are. Crazy we be. <laughs> Thank you, Yoda. Sit down. Yeah, that kid couldn't act. The girl, she was kind of hot-looking, but she couldn't act either. What, uh, what, Natalie Portman? She won an Oscar. She did for doing what? She won an Oscar for the baller, the movie where she's a ballerina. Well, she's a what? A ballerina. Oh, yeah, she's really good at that. Yeah. Yeah, she won an Oscar for that. Oh, yeah, I thought she was real good at that. Didn't think she was that cool in this movie, however. They were doing it on, uh, was it, TNT? They are having a Star Wars weekend where they're showing everything. Right. Except Natalie Portman's underwear. Which is a shame, because she's cute. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure she is. She's cute. Uh, Dirty Dancing is on again. Ah. Right now. I'm just sorry. watching it before I came to do my show. Jerry Arbuck. Yeah, handsome. no one puts baby in a corner. That is the weirdest line of dialogue in the history of motion pictures. Have you notice that? Nobody puts baby in a corner. Who the hell asked you? <laughs> <laughs> She's just that much in a corner? Jeez, is you going to get all steamed about that? I'm, I'm not going to get all steamed at all. Oh, they didn't get along very well making that film. Yeah. What uh, um, what do you what do you have in the back burner there? What are you working on these days? Uh, working on uh, we're not working on it yet, but we will be momentarily. To live and lie in L.A., which is a true crime story that uh, Frank C. Gerardo and I are going to do. Interesting. Uh, about allegedly these Russian gangsters want to get their brother or cousin, whatever out of the slammer so they cut a deal where they become federal agents all the criminals they come in informants to set people up to get arrested if they can get enough points they can get their relative released from prison ah, so they frame a kid system. for murder and the kid's still in prison 18 years later well wow. uh, they uh, your title is reminiscent of one of the best movies ever made yes one where they're going the wrong way on a freeway no to live, to live and die in L.A. Yeah, this is to live and lie in L.A. Yeah. But um, William, is that, I think it's William Peterson who's on um, the uh, um, CSI Las Vegas. CSI, you know Las Vegas is dead as a doornail right now. I saw the governor or whatever uh, Man, on TV. Town. They closed down the entire strip and everything. T tumbleweeds running down the street. Yeah. Tumble and tumbleweeds. You know, this is really, really hard on the hookers, too. I'll tell you, the social distancing is not good okay. for uh, the economic well-being of people who rely upon physical contact. You, uh, you you, sit way over there, and you can do whatever you want, and you just watch me. I just watch? Yeah, you just get to watch. But you can't come within six feet of me. I can't come within what? <laughs> six feet of me. I don't want to see you do anything, whether I'm six feet or not. <laughs> but it's really strange. I mean, with all the social distancing, uh, my sources in the industry say some places business is booming. I guess people figure if they're going to die, they want to get laid first. 
uh, you know, again, kill the person they were going to have sex with. Uh, it's all very strange. So, um, how is stealing Manhattan? What's that? How is stealing Manhattan? Stealing Manhattan, well, if it weren't for this virus thing, we'd, uh, we'd have our deals done. Uh, we signed agreements with all sorts of people, and uh, money was, should be changing hands, but everything shut down with uh, Netflix and HBO. All, uh, you know, aren't doing anything until this calms down. Their offices are closed, et cetera, et cetera. But our agent is working on it. Uh, the last I heard, Netflix said, we want first tips on this, and HBO said, no, we got it first. So we'll see. <clears throat> sounds like, uh, sounds exciting. How's the book? Well, the book, but it's a three-book, uh, it's a trilogy. Uh, first book's already done. It's lovely. It's delightful. I enjoyed writing it. I enjoyed reading it. Ah. Uh, <laughs> and then there'll be part two, and then there'll be part three. So when, when, do you, when do you see the first, um, the first well, see, part? Well, it's all a package deal. The movie rights, TV rights, all going to be all packaged together so they all come out around the same time. Ah. So that's why we don't know the publication date on the uh, the book. Okay. So I can't tell you. Hopefully it'll be sometime this year. Uh, I mean, I got reservations to go to Loon Lake last week in June, so I'm assuming it'll be safe for me to get the hell out of here and go there by then. Well, I got uh, I, I got reservations to get my. Uh my, you know, my new driver's license in May. Get your what? New driver's license? Yeah, you know, you have to get that real ID driver's license. Oh, that's okay. I don't drive. <clears throat> well, yeah, but that's but you still travel and you need one. Oh yeah, that's right. They won't let you fly without one. They won't let me fly. No. No, I rescued Zach Gustine the other day. Did you hurt him? Uh, run him over? No, I thought of it in the past, but no. He was standing in the rain at the Circle Flying J, whatever the hell it was, in Denver, Colorado, trying to get to the Denver airport. Uh, didn't have anything left in his life except the clothes on his back and his phone. He had his airline ticket on the phone. I said, do you have any ID? He said, no, his wallet was gone. So I said, how the hell are you going to let you on the plane? So he talked to the airline. They said he'd ask him some more questions. You know, like, what happened to your brains? So anyway, me being the nice guy that I am, I got him to the airport. Well, that was nice of you. When was this? This the other day. Wow. A couple <clears throat> days ago. Okay, so he's um, he's not he in He'll be back in uh, Wisconsin or Minneapolis or the hell he lives. That's essentially wherever he, wherever he stops. That's where he lives. Wherever he went, that's where he is. Mm. But I, I Ubered him to the airport in Denver. Show you what a nice guy I am. I just can't. I, when someone asks me for help, I just can't say no. I'm just a boy who can't say no. I'm in a terrible fix. Ah. What do you, uh, what do you have uh, on tap for next week? Well, we may do for next week. It depends on where we are health-wise, virus-wise. We're going to be in the same we situation. We will be back into some degree of normalcy, and I will have a special guest on the show, either with me here or with us there. So i got a couple lined up. Or I'll tell you the story of the guy who hacked into the checkbook of New York City and started writing millions of dollars worth of checks to charity. <laughs> well, that was nice of him. Yeah. Yeah, he got away with it. I got all sorts of great stories. Mm. Any of them true? Yeah, they're all true. <laughs> 
Why be a true crime writer if you're gonna make that stuff? Oh, now I was gonna do my taxes, but I can't find any of my forms or anything. So that's one of the things that happened after I had the heart surgery is amnesia. I could not remember uh, any of my logout information for any websites, or emails, anything. All sorts of stuff that just like I wiped my hard drive. But I remember how to play the hits. <laughs> At least you have something to fall back on. Yeah, the floor. That's <laughs> <laughs> about it. Do you ever do you ever yes, take so the the dog out for a down. walk? Get out. I don't have a dog anymore. A dog died. And I'm Roger Moore. I do don't have a dog. Have you, ta- have you ever taken Barbara out for a walk? Put a leash on. Barbara has taken me for a ride several times. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll let her pee in the bushes. No, she won't let me out of the out of the, out of the house. I was going to go down to Walmart yesterday because I needed a new pair of reading glasses. She wouldn't let me out. She went down, came back with reading glasses for me and ice cream and uh, pecan shortbread cookies and chocolate chip cookies and yes, M&M's, all sorts of garbage to eat, which I appreciate. Wow. But uh, doesn't let me out of the apartment. Yes, So course. I'm going to have to murder everybody in the complex and get the hell out of here and I'll probably die of some horrible disease. <laughs> so that's all the news is fit to print there. Uh, there's some great books out from Wild Blue Press. I wanted to have their authors on. One is the guy, the perfect gentleman killer. He was so polite and charming, but women didn't take, take a shining to him, so he killed them. And who can say that he's at any fault there? Well, <clears throat> last thing a man wants is rejection. Hello? Everything went dead, Matt. I can't. I can't hear you either. Hmm. Talk. Talk to me. Yes, I'm here. There you are. I'm having a lovely time. I'm. Ah, you're back. Away. You're back. We're gonna have to have a microphone implanted in your head. So now the uh, the the show went dark this, for this, a moment. This time it wasn't Mark's fault. Can you imagine? What? It wasn't his fault this time. No, it wasn't. Was it Matt's fault? Um, I take the fifth, the sixth, the seventh. Could have been. Could have been. Maybe. <laughs> no, it couldn't possibly be Matt's fault. No, never. Uh, no, it must be the the governor's fault, the mayor's fault, not Matt's. Thank you. Okay, is it time for Matt's show yet? We've got five well, more minutes. Well, it cer- certainly is the governor's fault and the mayor's fault since we have a couple of the biggest idiot sticks on the planet in politics running what was a great state of California. And now, say goodnight. Goodnight. Good night. <laughs> so, so, Burrow, what's next? That's not what's next. Well, what's next is... Well, I think I'll hang up. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Burl. What's next okay. is Outlaw Radio and the Demon of Decadence. That's basically me because everyone else is whipped out. And we'll see you in a... Uh...